Well, you might have heard a bit about this story yesterday. Some exciting news for people who are working in or who are retired from the performing arts and entertainment industry here in BC. We're talking about new affordable rental homes so people can stay in their communities and have that security of having a housing. And somebody who was very involved in this project is Mike Klassen, who is the board president at PAL Vancouver. Mike, thanks so much for joining us to talk more about this. Thanks very much uh, for doing a story about this, Jill. Well, it's nice to do a a positive story about housing and to actually talk about something being done, not just something planned and off in the future and and unknown, because this this was a really positive announcement yesterday. Uh, Before we get into that, what exactly is PAL? So PAL has uh, been around since uh, as a a society in uh, Vancouver um, uh, since 2001. Uh, in 2006, they opened their very first housing development in downtown Vancouver in Coal Harbor uh, on city-owned land. And so it was a partnership with the city of Vancouver. Um, it was uh, the money and funding uh, sort of to raise to, to get it going was done through a lot of the um, film and entertainment unions. So, um, uh, you know, sort of the camera locals and Directors Guild and um, and uh, the actors' unions and things like that all pulled together uh, a significant amount of money to try and bring that together. And as a result, we have about 100 or so units of housing in there, and about 60% of them are uh, described as being non-market, so they're uh, subsidized. And uh, as a result, we've got this fantastic community that's been there and, and, uh, and makes lives so much sweeter for a lot of uh, people who have worked in those industries. And so, and then, so explain a bit more about what was announced yesterday, the housing that's going to be coming or opening in New Westminster. So uh, what we did this time was we partnered with a uh, a private developer and uh, BC Housing. So the provincial government came in with a significant uh, amount of money, $7.4 million. Uh, the uh, private developer provided another $2 million as well as the land for us to be able to uh, build the building on. And we've got an eight-story building that will be going up and it will be opening in the summer of 2022. So I was out there yesterday with a hard hat on and a shovel and taking pictures. It's one of those things you see, you know, politicians doing. Um, and uh, I, I sort of visualized, and I've been talking about it with uh, our staff at PAL Vancouver for a long time, I said, we're going to do the hard hats and the, and the shovels. And we did that yesterday. We sort of broke ground on what will be uh, a fantastic new building in a, in a couple of years or so. And how does somebody then qualify? When we talk about people who are working in or retired from performing arts and entertainment, that seems broad. How does somebody qualify to be able to live in one of these units? So uh, part of the reason that we decided to um, seek out new opportunities for new housing is because we've had a long waiting list, about 100 people for just over the last sort of 13 years since we've opened. And I found that extremely frustrating. The uh, requirement to be in there uh, is uh, under the sort of subsidized category is uh, to be 55 plus and having some, um, having done some work in, um, you know, the arts and entertainment professions and, as I mentioned um, in other statements, is that uh, we've even had sort of former broadcasters there as well because um, just because of that relation to that kind of entertainment scene. 
Um, the requirements are, are um, kind of decided at the, at the point of, of uh, reviewing the application. If you have um, uh, some uh, income challenges and you have to be sort of income tested in order, in order to be um, a, a resident there, um, and you have uh, some professional experience, you can't just be somebody who's, you know, sort of sketching in a notebook someplace and say, I'm an artist and come in there. It should show that you've had a, a career. And, um, and that's the, really, that's the criteria. And then it goes through a bit of a, a small review process and, and the, the people are selected to be able to, uh, to uh, be uh, in that housing. In the case of New Westminster, what we're going to do is uh, we'll probably work out a formula to make sure that some of the folks that we do bring in there uh, will be a blend of our existing waiting list and some people who have direct um, connections to New Westminster. Right. And that makes sense, I, I would imagine. Is there any pushback at all when, when you talk about doing the income test in that uh, are, are people opposed to that or, or is it the best way to make sure? Uh, because while there are artists that don't make a lot of money, I'm sure there are a lot of artists that, that make a lot of money as well. Yeah. And, and I think that, um, uh, no, generally speaking, it's a it's sort of a basic requirement. And uh, and so people have to, and, and I'm, I'm not the person who does this, but I've had it explained to me, um, they have to submit um, essentially uh, uh, like a T4 or a tax statement to, just to show at the end of the year. And then that's, that's something that's done annually. It's a, kind of a unique situation, but uh, it allows um, allows us to make sure that the rents are um, appropriate for the level of income. So there, it, it is actually um, a rolling average over three years of what their income, because sometimes somebody might, like, for example, get on a TV sh- uh, series and then have a couple of good years of really good income. And then that third year, they're not working very much. And so we want to make sure that the rents are really reflective of how they're doing um, over a longer period, not just that uh, that year. Right. So the rent doesn't change then based on your income. Um, it it um, it would go uh, it would go up if you were making more money. Um, and this is again very much to the targeted to the affordable uh, units. We also have um, a, significant, a significant number of um, units that are called rent uh, near near market, which would be about ninety percent of market. Which I, I suppose in these days still see, seems pretty high, but it's actually quite amazing. You know, when you drop a hundred or hundred and fifty bucks off the monthly rent, um, it uh, it can make a big difference for some people. Um, do, and do you see this as well? This is focused on the arts community. Do you see this as possibly being a model for other areas as well? In that, I think we can we can all agree that that. Uh, the arts are very important. They're a very part, important part of the community. Uh, but even talking about first responders or talking about other members of the community that are also important to, to, to have. Uh, do you see this being a model perhaps for future developments in, in making sure there is, there is a good mix of people and, and, and everything in communities? Um, without question. I've been saying for years that we have uh, you know, people like health workers and educators and first responders are sort of the people that we absolutely depend upon, and they're being driven out of the city um, or forced to take transit, which is now um, obviously with the bus uh, job action, this can be a little tricky. Um, and so we do need to have uh, make some kind of uh, provision for that. So if we're doing a large um, new uh, redevelopment, for example, some of the talk that we're seeing over by the Broad Bridge on the Squamish Nation land, um, you know, maybe there's an opportunity to work there um, and actually have some units that would be 
um, subsidized or, or, or allow for people to come in and live more affordably to stay within the city. So, yeah, we really have to do that. And, and in the case of PAL, we've uh, had a lot of discussions because I get asked about it's all well and fine to, you know, to help out people who've um, had long careers. But what about the emerging artists? Because they matter a lot, too. You know, they're, they're the people who, you know, become the, the, the real stars, the, the, you know, the filmmakers and the, um, and the performers and the writers and the poets. And, you know, we've got to find a way to try and make sure that we, we don't lose them because of the cost of housing here. And so we're, we're definitely going to be exploring that in the, in the years to come. All right. Well, very uh, interesting uh, announcement, uh, an exciting project taking shape, uh, starting to take shape in New West. Mike, thank you so much for joining us to talk more about it. Appreciate it. You bet. Thanks a lot, Jill. Well, Germany is marking the 30th anniversary of the opening of the Berlin Wall, a pivotal moment in the events that brought down communism in Eastern Europe. So reporters are there today. There will be ceremonies uh, held there uh, marking 30 years. Mark Bonikowski is on the line with me now. He was the European bureau chief with the Toronto Sun when the wall came down, and he was there when that happened. Mark, thank you so much for taking a few minutes with us today. Uh, what do you remember about that day? Well, I remember getting the phone call from Toronto. That, that I was in Poland at the time uh, interviewing Lechlowenza, who's, a, if you go back, he was the head of the founder of the uh, Solidarity Movement. And the last place I wanted to go, because I was dead tired, was to Germany. And uh, anyhow, my editor-in-chief said, go and, and then relax afterwards. So... What he had heard was that there was another Politburo change, and I was covering those almost daily uh, when I was the bureau chief, and they were usually lit up to nothing. So I arrived uh, in Berlin the night before the wall came down, and, and, you know, and was actually there in the press conference on the east side uh, when uh, Gunter Schabowski made the news that no one was expecting to hear. And you've written about this. Your current column in the Toronto Sun talks about it. You write uh, about the fact that, uh, looking back, it was more to do with luck than planning that you happened to be there at that time. Yeah, you know, just what I said. I didn't want to go, but I went. Uh, and uh, I got there the day before, so, uh, you know, I was twiddling my thumbs thinking, how am I going to get to the into the Politburo's to find out what's going on there? I'm going to have to wait until the first of the week, uh, you know, and I was... Uh, miserable about the whole thing because I was so dog tired, but it, it ended up being a very huge and momentous historic situation that uh, livened me up very quickly. So, at what point did you realize something big was about to happen? We didn't. It was the strangest thing because we're in this press conference in East Berlin, an East German press conference. And we're waiting for Gunter Schabowski. No one there knew what he was going to say. We thought maybe he was going to announce that maybe uh, Igor Krentz has stepped down as president. Or, you know, it, going back to East Germany 30 years ago, it was uh, so much happening there. Uh, in Russia, in, in the Soviet Union, uh, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev has sort of lessened up, lessened uh, the ties to Moscow. Uh, we had no idea. We had no idea. The last thing we thought would be the Berlin Wall coming down because it was such an iconic uh, statement for their for the Cold War. You know, it had been there since 1961. It went up overnight when uh, Nikita Khrushchev just sort of threw down his, his his fist and said, "Build it." Uh, 
and uh, people went to bed one night and woke up to barbed wire and, and, and chain fences the next. And over the course of years, it developed into a, a double stone wall with uh, snipers in the middle in their guard towers. And and so at what point, uh, I'm just, it just must have been so amazing at this point. Like you said, you're kind of bored. You didn't want to be there. Nobody knew what was going to be announced, what he was going to say. Then suddenly you find yourself there and you're witnessing what is one of the biggest events, what was to become one of the biggest news stories ever. Yeah, it was, it was incredible. The fact that I was English speaking too, uh, I mean, we looked around... Tom Brokow from NBC News, now retired, was there. Uh, just by happenstance, too, he was going off to Cyprus where Reagan, uh, President Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev were going to have a summit. Uh, so he just thought he'd stop in and see his uh, West Berlin bureau, and then there was an announcement about a press, release, a press conference in East Berlin, so he went over as well. <clears throat> He and I talked for an hour afterwards because uh, we wanted to be sure what we heard because, you know, I grabbed an interpreter coming into Berlin. He grabbed one as well, and his interpreter and my interpreter hadn't heard exactly the same thing. Uh, We heard about the the wall, lifting of travel restrictions. Even that alone would have been a a huge thing because some East Germans were going around through Hungary and coming in the back door of West Germany. Uh, and uh, that was causing a bit of a ruckus. But the, for the Berlin Wall itself to be coming down uh, was monumental. That must have been uh, pretty nerve-wracking, too. If you've got interpreters, you're trusting the interpreters to tell you what's been said. They don't agree on what's what's been said. I, I mean, it must have been rather unbelievable anyway. Yeah, it was kind of... They, they were really close. I mean, what they, what they heard, and I can't remember what the exact differences were, but uh, Tom Brokow, he wanted to be absolutely certain, as did I, but he more than me in the sense that he, he was going to break the news of the world because he had a television camera. He was the only Western journalist there with uh, an outlet to the, the rest of the world and through a television crew. So he, was, he, he would break the news of the world, I think, probably around, uh, I think the time there was made at about 3 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the afternoon, Uh, your time, or uh, Eastern Standard Time. And so he was the very first one to break it. But all hell had broken loose, and and because it was dark by the time, uh, it all sort of, it it was dark when we knew that it it was happening and it was real. And so at that point, did you head out? uh, Did you see the people climbing the walls, people with pickaxes? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. It's unavoidable. You could hear them. We left, I left East Berlin and, and, and drove back to West Berlin uh, and to sort of write up the story. But along the way, you could say you could see all these Berliners on top of the wall smashing with pickaxes and hammers and whatnot. And uh, meanwhile, the, the, uh, the Stasi, the, uh, the uh, East German uh, border guards in their, in their, in their uh, uh, gatehouses, uh, we're just standing quietly and, and watching, <coughs> doing nothing. Hmm. Which must have just been a, a, a surreal scene. It was mind-blowing, absolutely. Because no one in my generation, no one you know, after me, uh, really believed that that, that, would come, that that would happen. Even though, uh, you know, Reagan was there, you know, Mr. Gorbachev teared down this wall, 
just months before, uh, it, it, no one thought it would happen. And did you were you able to see then the reaction as well from people coming over that wall for the first time? Yeah, we. Uh, I stayed a couple of days actually, and, and you know the next morning, uh, an official uh, pathway was bulldozed through from the east side to the west, uh, and that was the uh, f- for pedestrians to start pass passing in, uh, and then uh, so. Uh, that was the first time the wall would have been breached from the east going into the west. Uh, it had been breached in, in the west side and by West Berliners, who were a little brave and cocky, uh, but the East Berliners were a little more timid, uh, and those who came through were overwhelmed by what they saw on, in West Berlin, you know, the shops, the, the sophistication, the, the fruits and vegetables that they really dream of. Uh, it was like night and day when I drove through East Berlin. Uh, I could you could see in the alleyways and buildings the pockmarks from the bullets that had been fired during the Second World War. Uh, the the town, the city itself, looked like it had been uh, fast frozen in the night in the mid 1940s compared to Berlin, which was like uh, you know a nightclub city and, and very uh, outgoing with lots of. Fun, fun things happening, and no, uh, no uh, lack of, of, of food commodities or anything like that. Hmm. And you, you mentioned you stayed a couple of days. When you left, did it did it sink in what you had just witnessed? Yes, I mean it, it, it finally did because it was then you know what's going to happen to the Soviet Union. Um, uh, it obviously is cracked. Uh, you know, Germany was all one. One 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 country now, basically, it was just down to the to the uh, nitty gritty of, of of just admitting it. Uh, but uh, yeah, when I you know when I I can remember. I mean, I'm old, much older than you, but I can remember the communism thing. I remember as a boy in high in public school uh, having uh, <clears throat> uh, giving tests where you have to. Uh, get under your desk in case there was a nuclear attack. Uh, it was a time when people were building bomb shelters in their basements because of the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, when, when Kennedy and Khrushchev had that standoff. Uh, the Cold War was really frigid back then, and uh, I remember as a boy that kind of stuff. So, I mean, after years and years and years of it, you kind of you kind of temper yourself to it. Uh, but the Berlin Wall coming down was very significant. Absolutely. Well, Mark, we will leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us to share uh, your memories and your thoughts and for writing the column. It's in the Toronto Sun if people want to check it out. Uh, Thanks again so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. If you live along a major roadway or in an area with a lot of traffic, do you ever think about the air quality and think about how the air quality in that particular area might be more polluted than, say, if you lived away from the major roadway. Well, a new study or studies in the past that have looked at that have found that, yes, there are higher level of pollutants. So what do we do about that? Well, Michael Geller, who is a columnist with the Vancouver Courier, has written about that exact topic, and he joins us on the line. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. Uh, This is something I think we don't talk about it so much in that we focus more on building more high-rises and more housing near transit hubs, and so it's convenient. But we don't often look at the pollution side of things. No, that's right. The irony 
as most of the planners in this uh, audience will tell you, is we have for years tended to put the highest density housing along the streets that are both the noisiest and the most polluted. And we do it because we know that if we try to put higher density housing one block or two blocks off the main street, with a few exceptions, it would be very difficult to get approvals. But I have heard a number of uh, recent news stories showing potential correlation between the pollution from traffic and various ailments. And that's why I I decided to write the column. Which makes sense. If you're living somewhere where it's rush hour every day or twice a day and, and cars are backed up and there's more vehicles, it makes sense that there would be higher pollutants, a uh, number of pollutants in the air. The, the in, most interesting thing about a recent study that was undertaken by the University of Toronto, and they've been looking at this for a number of years, is that it's not necessarily a correlation between the amount of traffic and the pollution. For instance, they said that, for instance, along portions of Clark Drive and Knight Street in Vancouver, the pollution is similar to that on a portion of the 401 highway in Toronto that has 12 lanes and 10 times the traffic. But in the case of uh, Knight Street, Clark, it's those trucks. And those trucks can often be uh, very polluting. Right, because that's a truck route, so you'd obviously so you'd see a lot more trucks on that that stretch of road. Other uh, compared to, like you mentioned, or like the study mentioned, if it's a highway, we're talking about a mix of vehicles on the highway. That's right. Now, uh, the the CBC National did a story on this last week, which is what prompted me to think about doing this again. But when I started to do a little bit of research, I discovered that Councillor Jean Swanson, who I sometimes criticize. <laughs> But this time I applaud, raised this matter with City Council last May. And uh, she proposed that a number of actions be taken, one of which was to tell the people who live along those streets, you know, to close their windows and uh, perhaps be very cautious. But uh, in conjunction with writing the column, I put forward an idea that I learned about in 1992 on my first trip to Japan, where I noticed in Tokyo along major streets, like imagine Burrard Street, Granville Street, Georgia Street, they had hedges along the side of the road. And they were hedges like you would see on a suburban residential street or another residential street in Vancouver. And when I asked my hosts, you know, why do you plant hedges along here? They said, oh, it's very effective against the pollution. So that was one purpose of writing this column, was to put to the city of Vancouver the idea Why don't we start looking at planting hedges along some of these roads? It's just a Band-Aid. It's only part of the solution, but it has been shown to be effective. And in January, I was in southern China, and I saw exactly the same thing. So there's one idea that I'm hoping the engineers and the park board and the residents of the city will look at, especially because there increasingly seems to be a correlation between uh, traffic pollution and uh, diseases like dementia and Alzheimer's and so forth. No direct correlations, but suggestions of a correlation. Do you think in the those existing streets, though, do you think, is there space to put hedges and to put a, a, that type of hedge that would be effective? Well, you know, the irony is that you might well create that space by simply encroaching, let's say, five feet into the front yards of people's home. And everybody would be, I think many people living along those streets would happily give up five feet if they knew it was going to be used for 
for hedges and perhaps even a, a portion of a bicycle lane. So I just, all I'm suggesting, no, you may not be able to do it everywhere, but in some areas, I think you, you could do it. The, the other thing that I noticed is that street trees, while they add a lot of beauty to a street, they're not as effective as hedges. But that being said, I still think it would be advantageous to have more street trees. And that was the second idea I put in this column, which is if the park board says they can't afford to plant more street trees down all these streets, let's do what I saw in France, have a tree dedication program, just like a bench dedication program. In a town in France, I, was, uh, I noticed all along the main street there were street trees, and then there were plaques in the sidewalk where that tree had been planted in honor or memory uh, of somebody. And I thought that was another idea. Again, it wouldn't work everywhere, but it might be an idea to help plant more trees in Vancouver. Oh, absolutely. And you'd think if we can do it with benches, it shouldn't be that difficult to do it with trees. That's right. And whereas benches are often dedicated for a specific period of time because there's so many people wanting, I would love to see a permanent tree dedication program so that this is Remembrance Day weekend. So Make it up a hundred years from now, you'll be able to see uh, the dedications and the year that they were dedicated, and it then becomes part of the history of the city. Uh, you talked about, too, th- this idea of, of, so if we looked at a street like Knight Street or Clark <coughs> Drive, then you might have to encroach on yards. You might have to find creative ways to find space if you were going to be planting hedges. What about spaces, though, like the Canby Corridor, where there's that big swath of land in the middle, where there are some trees, but it's it's mainly, or it's a lot of grass. Do you think there's there's kind of a missed opportunity there that that could be more hedging or more trees? That's right. And in fact, I am a consultant for one of those projects along proposed along the Cambry Corridor, and the city does have very specific guidelines relating to landscaping, bicycle lanes, and so forth. There's nothing about tree uh, hedges, but I think that would be an excellent opportunity. I must say I, I would compliment the city because the Cambry Corridor is one area where the city has said we don't need to increase density just along the street. We can go back one, two, three blocks, and in fact, uh, have lower density, but still uh, apartments and townhouses in that area. So that is an example, to my mind, of how how it might be done. I remember years ago, I proposed an apartment building on uh, 41st uh, at Balaclava, and Councillor Gordon Price said to me, Geller, how come you're always here proposing apartments on uh, major streets where it's busiest and noisiest and pollution? I said, would you approve a project if it was on 42nd? And he said, yes, I think I understand your point. <laughs> it seems that seems to make perfect sense. Uh, but you're right. We do see these projects. And even looking at Oak Street, I mean, there's still a lot of uh, single family homes boarded up that will be torn down, uh, replaced with townhomes and, and higher density. But as that happens, that's also going to be a street, I would imagine, where we've got much more density. And it's still a very busy commuter street. You know, it's an interesting point, Jill, because at 42nd and Oak is in the seniors' apartment building that I built, and I put a double row of oak trees in front of the building. The irony is I had to reduce the height from four stories to three stories to get approval. Today, you can barely see the building. But one block south, a very big developer built another little apartment building, and they weren't required to plant any trees, and I always thought it was wrong. Now, subsequently, the city has gone in and planted one row, But wouldn't it be lovely to have double rows of trees along many of these streets? Uh, 
I mentioned in the column that uh, one of the things I saw when I was in China was even commercial streets, like with shops down the main and housing above, they have a tree canopy that completely covers the street, similar to what we see on some uh, Vancouver streets. I I live near Blenheim Street. Uh, That street in portions is completely covered by trees. They have commercial streets like that. And again, it's both beautiful but I think it does benefit the reduction in pollution as well. It's an interesting idea, definitely. Uh, Michael, we will leave it there, but thank you so much. Always good to talk to you. Jill, thanks for your interest in this one. I appreciate it. Taking a look at the transit strike in Metro Vancouver, and TransLink today is saying that there will be no C-bus cancellations. However, that comes after dozens of sailings were cancelled yesterday, and we also learned about delays and cancellations on about 25 of the busiest bus routes in Metro Vancouver. So where do things go from here? Joining me on the line is Gavin McGarrigal. He is the Western Regional Director with Unifor. Gavin, thanks so much for being here again. Yeah, thanks, Jill. Uh, What do you anticipate happening as far as job action uh, this weekend? I know there's nothing planned for Remembrance Day, but heading then into the work week. Well, we're taking it day by day. We know that messages continue to come in to Coast Mountain and TransLink. People are supporting the drivers. So we're just continuing with our maintenance uh, and CBUS worker overtime ban, and our members uh, who are driving the buses are not uh, wearing uniforms. Uh, so do you anticipate uh, that coming up into the work week, say Tuesday, Wednesday, we're going to see more of the bus disruptions? Well, every day we're evaluating the situation. I know our members are, are getting quite angry. They were uh, called uh, unskilled uh, workers the other day uh, from the operators that, uh, you know, my phone is blowing up with, with people uh, complaining about that. Um, you know, the company is saying that they support the workers, but really they don't. Uh, in the last day or so, we've seen some news stories out where, uh, you know, cameras have gone along to places like UBC, and, and you can physically see that the drivers get something like two minutes to uh, to take a bathroom break. So there's a lot of anger out there from our members, and it's, it's only building. And, um, you know, really the only reason we haven't ramped it up is because out of our respect for the public, and we want to try to give them a chance to speak out before we, uh, you know, move to more disruption. And I know you've said in the past there's no point going back to the bargaining table if the company doesn't shift or do make some move where when it comes to wages and working conditions. Is there any point, though, in that the, there's no chance of anything being done if the two sides aren't talking? Isn't it better to be at least at the same table? Well, we can be at the same table, but if the company hasn't changed their approach, then it's simply not going to accomplish anything. And, and that's, the, that's what we've been saying all along for the past number of days. The company's been out in the media saying they want to get back to the bargaining table, but the reality is, is they simply have told me they want to talk about working conditions. And we've asked them, are they prepared to start to deal with the other issues as well, which are, which are just as important, you know, the comparisons with other cities like Toronto for operators and, and the inequity within the current transit system for skilled trades. And uh, the silence has been deafening. Uh, I was on uh, various channels yesterday, and I said very clearly, uh, send me a message, send me a text, phone me up and say, listen, we're prepared to talk about all the outstanding issues, um, and we'll be back at the table. And uh, again, silence. So it tells me they're not serious. This is just a media uh, game for them. They're blaming the workers, as I said, calling them unskilled and denying the fact that they've got real problems with overpaid um, 
you know, executives that uh, really think they know better than the workers who are out there every day. Uh, you talk about the, the comparison, and I know you've mentioned this before, the the comparison of maintenance workers and mechanics with SkyTrain versus Coast Mountain Bus, and that there's there the, the workers at SkyTrain get paid more. Uh, when we put that question to the company, the company comes back and says, well, you can't really compare those two, right, to th- that they're the same because there's Sunday premium at Coast Mountain, there's not Sunday premium at SkyTrain, and that there are other differences with the benefits. What do you say to that? I'd love to see their analysis on that. I mean, sure, the contracts are different, and we could go through all of the uh, all of the different uh, components of the contract. And I'd love to see them make an argument to us that somehow, uh, you know, the, the central thrust is wrong, which is that there's a wage disparity there, even when you take everything uh, into consideration. Look, the reality is, is these are red ski- red seal ticketed skilled trades, electricians and heavy-duty mechanics. They're working under Transink in the same system, and the wage rate is uh, is way off. Uh, and, uh, you know, they have never made any serious attempt. They've provided no breakdown at all as to how they think uh, Sunday premiums might factor into that. And, of course, that's only a portion of the workers in any event who, who do get the Sunday premium. So, you know, they simply are out there in the media. They're, they're putting out these figures like $608 million, uh, which is interesting because... They say that their offer on the table is $71 million at something like 9.6%. Um, and then they say that we're asking for about a third more, 15%, never given us any breakdown. But somehow when you move up an extra 5%, the number allegedly jumps from $71 million to $608 million, almost 10 times as much. Um, so again, we think they're just misleading the public with these kind of uh, numbers. Uh, you mentioned before that uh, the workers are willing to be in this for the long haul. Is that still the message you're getting from the the union members? The union members are very, very strong and determined uh, to to achieve uh, some progress on all of the key issues. I mean, it was 99.3% of people who voted. Uh, uh, you know, I think it was 3,200 people in secret ballot vote, voted, and there was something like 22 no votes. So they're very, very firm. And as I said, they're only getting angrier every day when they see, uh, you know, someone that makes more than the prime minister out there basically calling them greedy and unskilled. So uh, if it wasn't for their discipline, uh, they would have all walked off the job by now. Um, so again, like I said, we're focused on the public. And um, But, you know, the, the, the members are getting more upset, not less. On the one hand, you're saying that your union members are in this for the long haul. I know you've said it could be four months, six months, a year. The premier saying that's absolutely not going to happen on his watch. I think that's hypothetical at this stage. I mean, you know, I think the Premier was responding to the B.C. Liberals' attempt to make political hay out of this. And, uh, you know, we know, quite frankly, that the B.C. Liberals are no friends of working people. And uh, so it's no surprise to us that they would try to capitalize on this. I mean, I I heard uh, Andrew Wilkinson on TV yesterday trying to give, uh, you know, score some political points off the Premier. Uh, and basically, I would like to know what is his solution. Take away the right to strike from everyone and legislate everyone back to work. I mean, it's ridiculous. And, you know, the Premier was speaking to a hypothetical situation that hasn't occurred. We have not shut down the entire system. Uh, we are not in a four-month strike. Uh, right now, uh, people have exercised a constitutional right to strike, and we've done it at the lowest form possible, which is simply an overtime ban. Um, we've indicated that, you know, at some point, we're willing to uh, to consider a shutdown of the system. But we've also been clear that we don't want to impact the passengers. 
So, you know, I think it's uh, the day before. I think the premier also said that he believes in in uh, full collective bargaining, uh, as do we. So, you know, again, we won't take any lessons from the BC Liberals or Andrew Wilkinson. They gutted the Employment Standards Act. They gutted the Labor Relations Code. They've caused all kinds of job loss in the forestry industry. I mean, the list uh, goes on and on. And it's not unexpected that they're trying to, you know. Um, take shots at the government, but uh, they got nothing to teach working people. Does it make it more difficult, though, or as far as the union's next step, when you talk about escalating job action, uh, the, the next one I think people think would be the natural one would be an overtime ban by drivers, which you've said would lead to an immediate 10 to 15 percent reduction. But is there a hesitancy then to take it even further? Because with the premier going on the record saying a four-month strike isn't going to happen under his watch, uh, the minute you go, if it was to go to a full walkout or something that was having a lot of disruptions, is there not the fear you'll be legislated back to work? No, we're going to uh, we're going to chart our our course on on the basis of what's right for our members, and and of course we're looking at the passengers. So, you know that's what we're focused on. Um, you know, there's all kinds of government intervention that could occur. I mean, the government ultimately created TransLink, and um, you know they appoint people to the TransLink board, uh, some people, and uh, there are ways behind the scenes that, that that the government can deal with this as well. So, I think we're a long, long way away from any of that. Um, you know, and quite frankly, I think there's a corporate uh, culture at TransLink in Coast Mountain where they think, you know, it's okay to pay themselves more than the Prime Minister and give themselves 18 to 25 percent raises um, and then try to blame the workers saying all of the expansion in the system is going to be uh, impacted if you if you give them enough time to go to the bathroom or something to eat or or pay them fairly on, on accurate comparisons. So, um, you know, again, there's a, there's a broken uh, culture uh, in TransInc and Coast Mountain uh, Bus Company. The, the executives, for instance, who run the Toronto Transit system are paid much less than the executives who run our system here, but yet the operators are paid much more, and I think, you know, that's symbolic of, of what we're dealing with here. Uh, would you like to see it then, uh, with comparing it to Toronto, if the CEO of TransLink, do you think that, that a more reasonable salary for the CEO of TransLink would be, be the same as what his counterpart in Toronto makes? Well, I mean, I think it's just indicative of, of their approach. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, I think that they're paid far too much money for doing the work that they do, and clearly they've made a mess of it. They've designed a system where people don't have enough time to take a break. Um, you know, they're, they're, they love their shiny capital infrastructure projects and, and going around and speaking to Board of Trade uh, lunches, but at the end of the day, uh, it's all on the backs of the workers. They're, they're happy to accept awards for best transit system in North America, while our members are uh, getting more and more frustrated. I mean, this is the first dispute in 18 years, and I've seen no acknowledgement by the company at all that they have any role uh, in fomenting this dispute. Uh, why is it that Mr. McDaniel's been there maybe a year and a half, and all of a sudden we have uh, such anger among the workers, and you know, Mr. Desmond uh, trying to pretend that Coast Mountain is uh, not a part of TransInc, um, you know, is, is just simply irresponsible. So, you know, really what we're saying is they're not focused on the needs of the people in the system. It's not just the capital projects, it's the operating budget uh, for the people who make it run, and the bus system is the absolute backbone of the entire transit system. All right, uh, Gavin, we'll leave it there. Thanks again so much for your time. Yeah, thanks again, Jill.